you're listening to Veg Your Best. My name's Michelle Olander, and I'm a life coach, and I use the tools that I've learned through coaching and other modalities to support people as they start, restart, or re-energize their vegan and plant-based practices. Because, like I say every week, there has never been a more important time to be vegan. This week, episode 111, and it's a conversation with Melanie Joy, Ph.D. This was big for me. Last month, last month, I had the opportunity to interview Melanie Joy, Ph.D. And if you don't know Melanie Joy, Dr. Joy is a Harvard-educated psychologist and I would say one of the most powerful thought leaders, not just in the area of vegan studies either, but also in the study of injustice in its many forms. Dr. Joy's PhD dissertation turned into her groundbreaking and best-selling book, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. And in addition, Melanie Joy is the author of six other books, and In our conversation, we don't get to talk about all of Melanie's output and her conversations with different aspects of social justice movements. But if you look around and Google her, you'll see Melanie Joy has been featured by media outlets around the world, including the New York Times, BBC, NPR. And she's the eighth recipient, she didn't tell me this, of the Ahimsa Award which has previously gone to the Dalai Lama as well as to Nelson Mandela. And that's been for her work on global nonviolence. Now, she's also received other prizes for her work developing strategies to reduce the suffering of animals. And can I tell you that when I got to 100 consecutive weekly podcast episodes, I screwed up all my courage to ask Melanie Joy to be a guest on Veg Your Best. Now, many of you, my listeners, have come to vegan and plant-based practices more recently, often in midlife. And so I take really seriously welcoming everyone to the vegan table. And I also believe, I think as you know, in meeting everyone where they are. But if you do not know Melanie Joy, PhD's work, I think you should. And if you do, I think you will be as excited as I am that she's on the pod today. Now, in the show notes, there will be links to all of Melanie's work and her books and her organizations. So don't worry about writing things down. Please just enjoy listening and having your brain challenged a little bit today. And I'll see you on the other side of the interview. Melanie Joy, PhD. Welcome to Veg Your Best podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's really an honor for me, and I really appreciate you making the time. And I will try to respect your time, even though I'm going to want to keep you for hours and hours, but I'll try to respect your time. Um, I came to your work um, after I had become vegan. And through your book, which I think maybe is maybe your most famous, which is called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. 
And I'm wondering if you could give me a sense of how, with all your training, all your, your, your work, your PhD, you came to this area of veganism, carnism, and, and behavioral change. How did you come to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so it really started in childhood for me, I think. Um, like so many people, I grew up with a dog who I loved. Um, and I, of course, grew up eating meat, eggs, and dairy. And of course, I was also a person, like most people, who cared about animals and would never want to cause them to suffer, you know, especially when that suffering was completely unnecessary and intensive. And yet, over the course of so many years and so many meals, I never thought about how strange it was that I could pet my dog with one hand, you know, while I ate a pork chop with the other, you know, a pork chop that had once been an animal who was at least as intelligent and sentient as my dog. I just, I didn't connect the dots between, for example, the meat on my plate and the living being it once was. Um, it wasn't until years later, it was 1989, I was 23 years old, um, that everything changed for me. What happened was I um, ate a hamburger that turned out to be contaminated with Campylobacter. That's the salmonella of the red meat world. And I got incredibly, incredibly sick. Um, I was ended up in the hospital on intravenous antibiotics. And by the time I um, <laughs> recovered, I just could never eat meat again because, and it wasn't for, in my mind, it wasn't because of any conscious decision, you know, around my personal ethics. It was more that I was just, you know, the feeling like after you get so sick, you're disgusted by the last thing you ate. Um, and so I kind of, I became a vegetarian by accident basically. And this meant that I had to learn about vegetarianism and I had to learn how to cook for myself and, you know, how to shop for myself. And what I learned um, shocked and horrified me. Um, I became vegan shortly thereafter, actually. Um, I just couldn't believe the extent of the harm and the suffering, you know, um, non-human animals. I mean, what these animals went through was just shocking to me, the, the harm to the environment, the harm to my body. Um, but what shocked me in some ways even more than all of this was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They would say things like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, you know, or they'd call me a radical vegan hippie propagandist. And these were my friends. They were my family members. They were people just like me. They were rational people. They were compassionate people. They were justice-minded people. They were people who cared about animals who would never willingly contribute to what could only be called a global atrocity. And yet all I had to do was open my mouth or not even open my mouth, just not eat the meat on the table. And suddenly I was the target of this indescribable like, hostility. And so I became very curious as to how it was possible that rational, caring people could just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue of eating animals. Um, this led me to eventually do my PhD in social psychology. And I focus broadly on the psychology of violence and nonviolence. We could really call it the psychology of oppression and social transformation. You know, I was really curious as to how, you know, quote unquote, good people, you know, which most people really are, certainly the people around me were, could turn away from a reality that they didn't want to face and uh, enable atrocities, you know, all forms of atrocities, not just the atrocity that's happening to farmed animals. Um, I figured if I could understand what was going on psychologically that made people turn away from these atrocities, I could understand how we might be able to shift that thinking. So my research, um, 
I wrote my doctoral dissertation specifically on the psychology of eating animals. And um, this research led me to identify what I came to call carnism, which is the invisible belief system that conditions us to eat certain animals. And that became, that was the focus of my book, my, my Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. I didn't want to write you know, another book about why people shouldn't eat animals. You know, we have, the, the facts are out there, right? We There are indisputable facts that are out there about the harm that animal agriculture is causing to animals, the environment, and humans. It's not, you know, there's no question to that. I was curious as to why the facts weren't enough. I was curious about what makes people resistant to the facts. Why do we resist the very information that would help get us out of the box we don't realize we're in and act more in alignment with you know our core values and contribute to the kind of outcomes we actually want in the world and so this this is really what the focus of of why we love dogs was on and um you know in, in later years in my more recent writing my, my newest book which is coming out next year is uh called how to end injustice everywhere and you know in writing in writing why we love dogs i sort of had a blueprint for the psychology of essentially the psychology of injustice, the psychology of oppression, and also how, how to, to change that. Um, I looked at the specific psychological mechanisms, you know, what happens to us psychologically that we can disconnect from the reality of what's happening right in front of us and all around us, and therefore enable something that we would normally be deeply opposed to. I assume that ability to compartmentalized that humans have is a biologically very advantageous for us in some ways to have uh, spent a couple million years evolving. We, we can't think about everything to stay alive, probably. So how does that relate this idea of um, we don't see what we don't see? How does that help us be, which I think you teach, compassionate with ourselves if we're having trouble seeing certain things? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we are bombarded by massive amounts of information constantly. We have to be able to compartmentalize really quickly. We wouldn't be able to function if we couldn't, you know, and, you know, when we were living in, you know, small communities and in tribes, you know, you have to know friend, enemy, immediately you have to make a decision about who's coming at you and what's coming at you so that you can protect yourself and others in your community. So for sure, this tendency to put individuals in compartments um, has an evolutionary, has had evolutionary benefits. Um, it also leads to some of the most serious problems we see in the world today. Um, we when we are thinking about animals, for example, farmed animals, we learn carnism teaches us to classify a certain handful of animals as edible. All the rest we learn to classify as inedible and we and, and often we perceive them as disgusting to consume. And this happens, you know, the way that people relate to the animals they eat around the world is remarkably consistent, even though the type of species consumed changes. It's not about the content, it's about the process, it's about how we relate to the animals that we eat. So in mediating cultures around the world, we all learn to classify select species as edible. And we all learn to think of our own choices as rational and the choices of other cultures as irrational and often disgusting and morally offensive. And so this, we can see that this way of thinking, even though it has had advantages in the past, can be very problematic now because what happens is that 
we become conditioned. Cardism essentially conditions us to, cardism causes us to have distorted perceptions when it comes to those animals we've learned to classify as edible. We have distorted perceptions about the animals themselves and also toward the products procured from their bodies. So for example, when we look at, just I'll give you an example. Let's imagine that you are not vegan or a vegetarian and you're eating a hamburger, you're eating a juicy hamburger and your dining companion turns to you and says, by the way, Michelle, that hamburger is um, made from golden retrievers. Well, chances are your experience of that meat would dramatically change even though nothing about the meat itself actually changed right? What you just saw as food, you now see, or what you just thought of as food, you now think of as a dead animal. What you just felt was delicious, you now feel is disgusting. And so rather than continuing eating, you probably want to throw it in the trash and maybe even take to the streets in protest. Carnism distorted your perceptions around those animals that you learned to put in the category of edible and those distorted perceptions disconnected you from your natural, authentic empathy for those individuals. And therefore, you act against your core values, right, of, of compassion or caring. Um, you act against your own interests and the interests of other animals without even realizing what you're doing. So to your point about how can we feel compassion for ourselves in this system, recognizing that there even is a system in the first place is a key step to feeling compassion for ourselves. A lot of people feel, you know, when they hear about like my story, for instance, you know, and I, all I had to do was say I'm vegan and suddenly this wall would go up and I'd be attacked. Um, and fortunately things are better now in some places in the world anyway for vegans, but there still is certainly a lot of aggression toward vegans, um, big backlash, you know, toward vegans. And, um, this is in large part because carnism conditions us to feel defensive against anything that challenges, you know, the what we have learned to believe about eating animals. So it's very important for people to recognize if you feel this defensiveness, right? If you're not vegan and you feel this defensive, this this defensiveness, that's a normal reaction. That's not your fault that you're feeling that way. It's the conditioning that you've inherited, right? We've all been born into this system. We've all been conditioned. I ate animals for a lot of my life. And you know, as you say, you don't know what you don't know. The truth is out there. It's right in front of us. It's all around us. You know, trucks of body parts and of living animals going to slaughter are driving past us all the time. We walk into the supermarket. We are literally surrounded by the body parts of dead animals who have been killed. And yet we don't see what's right in front of us in large part because we have been deeply conditioned not to look and not to see and not to question why we eat certain animals but not others or why we eat any animals at all. And we've been conditioned to even resist information that challenges our perspective. So when you see the system that is carnism and the way that it's conditioned you, it can give you compassion for yourself. And, you know, you can say, okay, basically my psyche has been hijacked, you know, by this system that's conditioned me. Now I recognize that, you know, so the question is what can I do to help myself, help free myself from the system a bit so that I can think more authentically, think more for myself. So I'm going to ask you, so what can we do? But I, I it, it's making me, um, remind myself, um, some people who have been uh, vegan a long time, um, I've been vegan about seven years, 
so not a long time. And I was I was non-vegan for many, many years as an adult. I raised my children um, as, in a carnist way. And so I feel sometimes that I have an advantage that I really remember why I felt differently. I, I really do remember why I thought meat was natural and necessary. And what's the other one? Normal, your three normal. Mm -hmm. normal. Yeah, I, I was totally immersed in that. I totally believed that even though I chose not to eat a lot of it, still, I still felt it was those three ends. That was my justification. Mm -hmm. And so now, um, now that I do feel differently, and it's all as you're saying, it is a belief system that mm -hmm. you either are open to or you aren't open to. How um, I feel, generally speaking, that I do not give, I try to lead by example. I try to lead by what's possible because it's not my personality type to tell other people what to do. I also know it doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell us, what, what do we do when we are opening up and we're having that cognitive dissonance, that discomfort of, kind of knowing and also being like, yeah, but yeah. But. Yeah. I mean, that's another really good question. So, I mean, first of all, awareness is really the first step. Like it's really important to become aware, not just aware of the consequences of carnism. Um, I think it is important to become aware of the consequences of carnism, but it's also important to become aware of carnism itself and how it is, has conditioned your thinking and feeling. Um, because when you become aware of how carnism is structured and specifically how it has affected you, it, the system has less control over you. Um, you know, you free yourself from it a little bit. So, you know, so more farmed animals are slaughtered in a single day than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history globally. This number is like so huge that most people just can't even wrap their brains around it. It's there's a lot of information out there about carnism, about the harm it's doing, the fact that animal agriculture is a leading driver of climate change, for example. Um, and that it is also a leading cause of some, you know, of the most uh, prevalent diseases in the Western world, um, you know, such as heart disease, type two diabetes, and you know, certain types of cancers, and so on. So it's it's important to get informed about these things to the best of your ability, you know, while also being careful not to take in too much traumatic material because. You know, you don't even have to. Some people are afraid and think, well, if I want to like move toward veganism, I have to know everything there is to know about carnism. And that means I have to watch those videos and I'm not ready to do that. You don't have to watch those videos. You know, you just get informed about the consequences of carnism to the best of your ability and about the system itself. Um, let me just tell you briefly about the system itself. And then we can talk about how to unblend, you know, from that system and communicate in a way that, you know, helps reduce others' cognitive dissonance and also De defensiveness at the same time. Um, so carnism is a special kind of system. It's what's called a dominant system. That means that it is so widespread, essentially, that its beliefs are, um, you know, basically woven through the structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. You know, it becomes institutionalized. It's embraced this mentality of carnism, the belief in carnism, that eating animals is the right thing to do is institutionalized. We learn this from all of our major major institutions, business, you know, government, medicine, and so on. So when we study nutrition, for example, we actually study carnistic nutrition, right? The bias is woven right through society. And we just don't see it. Um, 
Carnism is also a violent system, and I've already talked about how it's it's violent, and it's so violent that it is, you know, most people would never, ever willingly support the extent and level of violence that is inherent in Carnism. I mean, if this violence was 90% less than it actually is, it would still be 10% too much for most people. So, um, you know, in order to get people to support it, the system, and I'm not saying this is the system consciously does this, it's the way it is structured to maintain itself. Carnism needs to use a set of psychological defense mechanisms. As I said, they distort our perceptions and disconnect us from our natural empathy. So we act against our own interests and our values and the interests of others without even realizing what we're doing. When we're born into this system, this dominant system such as carnism, we end up internalizing its messaging, its logic. We learn to look at the world through the lens of carnism. So we internalize these defenses without even realizing that we've done so. So an example of a carnistic defense is um, you don't, the name doesn't matter, deindividualization. So this means that we learn to think of farmed animals as abstractions, as lacking any individuality or personality of their own. So we learn to believe, for example, that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. Um, this, this is a psychological distancing mechanism. You know, on one hand, we know this isn't true. We know that pigs are unique individuals, you know, with um, lives that matter to them and sensitivities and intelligence, just like our dogs are. Um, but carnism teaches us not to know. We have a knowing, the, the psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton, who studied the psychology of genocide, talks about a knowing without knowing. On one level, we're aware of an unpleasant truth, and on another level, we just don't connect the dots. Carnism also teaches us to think of farmed animals as, as objects. So we learn to refer to the chicken on our plate as something rather than someone, another distancing mechanism. And carnism teaches us to believe in, in a whole mythology of eating animals. Um, these myths are, are you know, um, summed up by what I call the, the three ends of justification that you mentioned. Um, eating animals is the belief that eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. Right, arguments that have been used basically to justify violent practices throughout human history, from male dominance to heterosexual supremacy. So um, understanding these defenses can be really, really helpful to be less affected by them. It's really important. And you mentioned cognitive dissonance. So what do we do? Like, what do we do when we start opening up to this truth and we feel that cognitive dissonance that makes us want to, ah, you know, so uncomfortable. So cognitive dissonance for people who are not aware of this phrase, this, this concept is the internal discomfort we feel when our values and our behaviors are out of alignment. So if we think I am a caring person, I'm a person who is not cruel to animals. And yet we eat animals on a regular basis, not because we need to, to survive, but because we like the way they taste. This behavior is antithetical. It, 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 it doesn't, you know, it's in opposition to our, our values. Um, now, research has shown that people need to maintain a positive moral sense of themselves. Basically, we all need to feel like we're living a basically moral life. So when we feel cognitive moral distance, we feel this internal discomfort. It's not a comfortable feeling. We want to do something about it. Well, we have three choices. We can either change our values. We can say, yeah, you know what? I'm not a very nice person. In fact, I'm pretty cruel and I'm not a compassionate person. Studies show that most people aren't gonna do that. Um, if we don't change our values, we can change our behaviors. This, In this case, 
it means to stop eating animals. Now, we also know that most people don't do that either. So they hear about the reality of what's happening to the animals, but then they don't stop eating animals. The third option is to change our beliefs about our perception of eating animals. And it's around this third option that carnism is organized. Carnism provides us with the very tools we need to act against our values without actually realizing we're doing so and without feeling the moral discomfort we might otherwise feel. So what do we do when the veil starts to be lifted? Well, we recognize, recognize that your cognitive dissonance is a really good sign that you have empathy. It's a good sign that you have a moral compass and that your moral compass is probably pointing in the right direction. Discomfort is not a problem. You know, this kind of discomfort is not a problem. This kind of a discomfort can be a gift. This is what helps us grow. This is what gives us important insights about, you know, this gives us important insights about ourselves and our choices so that we can course correct. And, you know, we need to simply be able to reflect on this moral discomfort without automatically translating this to mean that we're somehow bad people. And this is where we get into trouble because we've been born into such incredible dysfunction in the world, you know, because most of us really do struggle with self-worth because so we know the world's kind of a mess. Um, most of us, it's a very relationally dysfunctional world in many ways. And most people don't have a very strong sense of self-worth. Um, many of us are very easily feel ashamed and like we're not good enough. We're not good enough people. As soon as something happens that holds a mirror up to us so that we can see how our behaviors, you know, may not be quote unquote good or contributing to the goodness in the world or reflecting the kind of person we want to be, we can end up getting really defensive and saying, oh my God, oh my God, I don't want to be that person. And then defending against it and shutting down the message. Um, that's what we need not to do. Recognize that like good people participate in harmful practices all the time. And that doesn't make them bad people. We've been all been born into these incredibly horrific systems like carnism and patriarchy and racism and all of the other isms that are, by the way, structured in the very same way. The experience of each set of victims is always going to be unique, but the systems are similar, structured similarly, and the mentality that drives the injustice is the same. So if you can say, okay, I'm feeling morally uncomfortable, I'm being, I'm, I'm aware now that I've been contributing to something that has, you know, been harmful in the world to others, and I recognize that I'm only human, and you don't know what you don't know. And I'm a part of the system and this has been part of my conditioning and I'm going to have compassion for myself and, and say to myself, it's okay. This doesn't make me a bad person. This doesn't make me unworthy. This makes me human just like everybody else. Yeah. And when you have that kind of compassion, then you can start without it having to be all or nothing perfection. I know you often say perfection is the enemy of progress or of, of change. Um, I know a lot of my, a lot of the people I work with are typically women of middle to uh, late middle, middle age who are thinking that it's just going to be too much. It's going to be too hard. And what if I don't do it right? I, I open myself up to maybe gentle mockery all the way to accusations of hypocrisy. Um, so how, how do we help people feel safe, even though what we're talking about is something that's very, um, it is an atrocity. It is a terrible situation. It is morally upsetting. How can we be brave enough to make 
inroads, small inroads, without turning that into a cognitive dissonance, that it's all or nothing today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I love the saying, the perfect is the enemy of the good. And and it really is, you know, this, this all or nothing thinking, you know, prevents us from doing anything. Usually um, this great activist, um, animal rights activist, Henry Spiro said, if you go into a negotiation asking for all or nothing, you're probably going to end up with nothing. Um, and, you know, so we really do have to work with who we are and where we're at and what our own limitations are and our own abilities are. Um, I think it's, you know, I never use the word hypocrisy, I, I use the word contradiction. We have inherited a very messy world. We did not create this mess. We were born into it and we inherited it. And we have to make choices today that are different than the choices that we would make in an ideal world. And we have to be able to live with that. Um, and, you know, for example, I hear vegans saying they're tortured because they, you know, they have to feed their rescued cats meat because their rescued cats are, you know, getting sick if they don't, are going to get mm -hmm. sick if they don't eat meat. And, oh my God, what am I doing? Well, in a perfect world, you probably wouldn't be living with rescued cats in the first place because we wouldn't have this mess of stray cats all over the streets. And you probably wouldn't be feeding the meat because we wouldn't be slaughtering animals the way we're doing it today. So we have to really recognize that like, you can never live perfectly in alignment with your values 100% of the time. I mean, maybe you can if you're totally enlightened, but the world is certainly, I, I don't even know, you know, the world is certainly not set up for us to be able to do this. So drop the word hypocrisy from your vocabulary when you're referring to yourself or to others and just say, I'm a person, I have to live with contradictions. When people say to me, well, you know, Melanie, where do you draw your line? They find out I'm vegan and they say, oh, really? Do you not wear, do you, do you, do you wear animal products? You know, oh, what about leather? Do you wear leather? And then they still say like, wait, so where do you draw your line around your circle of compassion? And I always say, it's not where I draw my line that matters to me. It's how I relate to my line. That's the best any of us can do, you know, draw your line in pencil and do your best to relate to your line in a way that is, is, you know, authentic and compassionate and, um, toward yourself and toward others. I always recommend that people who are interested in contributing toward, you know, helping end carnism, essentially, um, that what they do is they try to be as plant-based as possible. Just try to be as vegan as possible. Only you know what is possible and sustainable for you. And my, my friend, Kathy Freston, she's another author, says, you know, don't think of cutting out foods, crowd them out, add more plant-based foods into your diet, and there will be less room for animal-based foods. And, you know, it's, it's really like, I don't remember the person's name. It's the, this, um, an activist for, um, net zero, zero, uh, zero waste. That's what it was. Zero waste said, you know, we don't need people wasting nothing. We need enough people wasting a little enough. I, I don't remember how she said it, but I would apply this to veganism as well. We don't need the whole world to go vegan. We need enough people to be vegan enough in order to tip the scales of power and really start moving toward a world where we are more vegan and, or fully vegan, I should say. Yeah. The author, um, he, he worked, uh, he was on the, uh, on, on my podcast a little while ago, Henry Mance, he talks about um, how like with smoking, um, it's not, it's not the exact same issue, but there's an idea that if we have a population where people move enough of that critical mass moves imp imperfectly towards a certain level, then things change institutionally. That's right. And right now, right now it changes mostly personally by our personal choices of how we spend money, how we spend our time, our energy, our thought process. It's very individual, but 
And so a lot of people say, well, it doesn't make any difference until the state gets involved. Uh, FDA changes things. Um, big institutions change things. Hospitals change how they, they feed us. So until these changes happen, what difference does it make? But this is how those changes happen. We need a tipping point of a certain number of people. Right. And those institutions are made up of people as well. And, and there is, when it comes to carnism, a lot of institutional change that is already happening. You know, businesses are changing their their models. You know, they're 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 producing plants rather than animals when they're making sausages or burgers, for instance. So there there is certainly a lot of change that's happening. And we definitely also have a long way to go. Um, one thing that might be helpful for listeners who are wondering, you know, and thinking about your great questions and points that I'm glad that you've been raising, which is, you know, really, how do we move through this process? Like, this is a big problem. It is, we're, like, the numbers are staggering, the impact is staggering, the carnistic norm is everywhere, you know, moving away from carnism affects our relationships, affects so many things. How do we do it? You know, and 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 a lot of people can feel can start to feel very moralistic around the issue. And it, I mean, it is carnism is don't get me wrong. It is a moral catastrophe by anybody's means. It would be a um, moral catastrophe. But um, at the same time, we can move through this process in a way that really honors who we are and where we're at and that is sustainable for us. And, and one guiding principle that, that I find useful and that I find because I'm you know very often trying to walk these lines and, and navigate my participation you know, in various atrocities as well. And I'm making choices and how is this choice affecting the environment? Should I buy this? Should I buy that? You know, Should I post this? Should I post that? It's a lot. It's a lot to take in and think about. So in my... Um, and my more recent writing, um, my book, Getting Relationships Right, it's, it's, it's like Beyond Beliefs, but it's a, it's a book about, it's a one-stop guide to building what I call relational literacy, which is the understanding of and ability to practice healthy ways of relating. When you look at the world and these problems that we're talking about in the world, right? You think about some of the most pressing problems in the world, and of course, also in our personal lives, you know, problems like patriarchy and, and, and animal exploitation, climate change, war, poverty, racism, and so on. You can see that they share a common denominator, which is relational dysfunction or dysfunctional ways of relating, right? Between social groups, between individuals, between humans and animals, between humans and the environment, even between us and ourselves, we're always relating to ourselves. And so what this means is that relational literacy or building relational literacy, the understanding of, you know, and as I said, the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating is a solution to helping transform all of these problems. Thinking about these problems as relational in nature, which they are, I mean, they're economic, there are a lot of factors to them, they are relational problems. They are problems in how we are relating. It can help people to feel a lot less overwhelmed, like, oh my God, there are so many things going wrong in the world. How do I navigate them? Well, practicing relational literacy, building relational literacy and practicing healthy relationality, when you do that, you are contributing to positive change in all the areas in which you're relating. And so relational literacy is based on a, a lot of different principles with a lot of different tools. 
but they are all based on this one very simple formula that anybody can learn and anybody can use at any minute, any time, in any situation. I mean, unless you're, it's a matter of life and death, right? And even then you might wanna think about if that can help you. Um, so this formula, it, here's the formula, right? In a healthy interaction, you know, or relationship, a relationship is just a series of interactions. In a healthy interaction or relationship, we practice integrity and honor dignity. Integrity is the integration of our core moral values, most notably of compassion and justice, and our practices. That's what integrity is. When you practice integrity, you treat the other or yourself, if you're relating to yourself, with respect, the way that you would want to be treated in that situation. Honoring dignity means perceiving and treating the other individual as no less worthy of respect or occupying space on this planet than anybody else. We are all equal in our inherent worth. Your dignity is your inherent worth. So when you practice integrity and honor dignity in an interaction, in a relationship, this leads you to a greater sense of connection and security. If you think about any relationship in your life that's a healthy relationship, chances are you trust that that other person practices integrity toward you and honors your dignity and you feel secure and connected with them. And the opposite is also true. In a less healthy relationship, probably you feel that that person violates their integrity. They don't treat you with respect, harms your dignity, doesn't treat you as though you're as worthy as they are or others of being treated with respect. And that leads you to feel disconnected and insecure. And this formula, it exists on a spectrum, you know, it's not like a relationship or interaction, a communication, whatever is relational or not. It's more or less relational, healthy, or non-relational, dysfunctional or unhealthy. So what I'm saying in a somewhat long-winded way is that the end of the day, if you're overwhelmed, or even if you're not, come back to this formula. That's the best any of us can ever do is to try to practice the formula. If you commit to building the formula into your daily interactions and your interactions with yourself, you're probably going to be drawing your circle of compassion or relating to your circle of compassion in a way that's healthy. And you don't need to worry about more than that, really, you know, get informed, obviously, but just practice the formula to the best of your ability and make sure, you know, when you're in a dis in a, an uncomfortable situation with somebody else, ask yourself, does this person seem to be practicing the formula toward me? Mm. Are they honoring my dignity? Do I feel when I look at myself through their eyes, do I feel like what I see is a worthy being or not? So, so this leads me to an area where many of the people I work with, um, many of the people who write in or or post comments have uh, relational problems with family members very often. And there's a sense of, well, why why should I have to um, put up with their attitudes towards me? Or how can I stay in a relationship, wh whether it's an intimate relationship or a family relationship or a friendship, collegial relationship, how can I stay in this relationship with someone who doesn't respect me? Um, and I don't know if you saw, did you see the recent Piers Morgan interview with, um, um, well, no. he, he, he was talking to a vegan advocate and during the process, he ate a, a, a beef burger oh, while talking to her. And hmm. so, you know, and, and so this is what I always say, it, and I, and I wonder how you're feeling about this, what your what your what you teach, how this intersects with me. I don't feel any need to, um, 
defend myself to anyone who's not actually curious. If somebody is, I, I don't get into debates. I don't get into, I, if people come together with some sort of equal respect, they don't have to agree with me, but if there's actual interest or actual openness of some sort, yes, of course, I'm all yours. But if there isn't, I don't, I don't need that. <laughs> and I don't need to, um, I, I, um, so I, for me, that's how I deal with it because I don't want to be in that situation. Um, I think other people may have more uh, capacity for that. Um, but this is kind of your idea of examining the spectrum that you're on of where the integrity and um, mm -hmm. what was the other dignity. one? Dignity. Dignity, dignity mm -hmm. is. T tell me how you would caution people who are new, perhaps, to living mm -hmm. in a plant-based or vegan life, new on that journey, how mm -hmm. they might um, think about implementing what, you, what you're saying there? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, get informed, you know, get informed um, because it is becoming vegan and being vegan is, it's, in my opinion, it's, it's, it, you know, is a very, can be a very empowering, very important choice to make, certainly. And it can be very challenging because, you know, most of us haven't been taught any relational skills, any formal relational skills to begin with. Relationships and communication are hard no matter what. But then mm. when you add this layer on, you know, where you become vegan, um, or even vegetarian, like vegetarians are on the receiving end of a lot of carnistic hostility as well. Um, it can make it even harder to navigate relationships and, and communication. That was why I wrote my book, Beyond Beliefs, which was a guide for, for vegans, vegetarians, and, and mediators and relationships. So um, get informed, build relational literacy, most importantly, build your effective communicate, build your communication skills, um, effective communication and relational literacy. Effective communication is a part of relational literacy. Communication is the primary way we relate. It's incredibly important. The information is out there. Anybody who wants to learn this can learn this. It is not rocket science. Once you learn effective communication, you can navigate communication in a completely different way. And it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, having a, discomfort, you know, or an uncomfortable conversation around veganism and carnism or whatever you, you know, somebody wants to go out and another person wants to stay in a, on a Saturday night, you have the tools to communicate about that in a way that reduces the chances that it's going to turn into a divisive debate and instead be a productive discussion. So, you know, all of that said, I, I cannot, I cannot stress enough the importance of this. It's sort of like, yeah, I don't know what a good a good analogy is, I mean, it's like wanting to drive a car in a racetrack, you know, get, learn how to drive the car first before you even race. Like if you're racing, you're already doing something that's even more difficult to navigate and, and you can learn this. So um, we have at, at my organization, Beyond Carnism, carnism.org and veganadvocacy.org, we run the Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy. We have so many materials. We have books, we have courses, we have, we're putting together sort of like talking points for vegans. Um, lots and lots of materials to help people communicate more effectively. So I'll give you a couple of tips now though, um, you know, that people can start using hopefully right away. I mean, one is that there, there is this, you know, just like carnism creates a psychology in people who are not vegan, right? And causes this sort of defensiveness it also causes them to perceive vegans in a way often that is negative. Um, it, it causes people to believe in negative stereotypes about vegans, you know, the overly emotional animal lover or the eating disordered picky eater or, you know, whatever it may be. And 
if vegans don't recognize these carnistic projections, as I call them, for what they are, it's really easy to buy into them and get hooked into this argument mm -hmm. about like, no, I'm not overly emotional or no, I'm not a picky eater. And, and it's, it's important to be able to talk about these issues, but you need to really identify them for, for what they are. Otherwise, you end up getting caught in this debate of justifications and a back and forth that, that goes nowhere. So there really is a psychology to this, and 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 you really can learn this. And, and if you don't buy into the negative messages you hear about yourself as a vegan, you will feel like it's easier for you to hold on to your truth in those arguments. So for example, so often vegans hear, oh, you're vegan because you're a sentimentalist, overly emotional animal lover, right? Well, the same argument was used to silence the voices of those who were like working for the abolition of African slavery and suffragettes who were working to get women the right to vote, who were called hysterical. This is a stereotype that has been used throughout the course of of modern history, at least, to shoot the messenger. If you shoot the messenger, you don't have to take seriously the implications of their message. Um, and you know, you can recognize that instead that your response of caring, of compassion, concern, of moral outrage, of grief um, to the global atrocity that is carnism is in fact legitimate, a legitimate, helpful response. Much more concerning is the widespread numbing and apathy of the dominant culture, right? Just knowing this can help you not get destabilized. Remember as well that, you know, underneath your differences of carnism and veganism, when you're dealing with a non-vegan, there's, there's a relationship between people. And that's where your focus really needs to be. And this is where effective communication comes in really well, you know, because you stop talking about whether to have meat in the refrigerator or not. And you start talking about your experience and what this means to you to have meat in the refrigerator. Very often, people who become vegan feel like so frustrated with the non-vegans in their lives. And it's so hard and so painful to feel disconnected from the people you used to feel connected with and lonely that you think that the only way to solve this problem is to get them to go vegan. And that makes you start to like really push to try to get people to go vegan. Except, you know, Michelle, as you pointed out earlier, trying to get people to change often backfires. People are very resistant to be being asked to change. What I recommend is not that you ask people to go vegan, but that you ask the people in your life to learn about veganism so they can understand you. You ask them to be a vegan ally or a vegan supporter. And this is a respectful and necessary ask of anybody that you wanna have any degree of closeness to. So you could say to the people in your life, you know, listen, I really would love to share information about veganism with you, not because I'm trying to change you and make you go vegan or become vegan, but because I really want you to understand me. This mm. is something that's very important in my life. You know, this, this is very, very important to me. And if you don't understand it, you're never going to be under, be able to understand me. And probably I'm going to be offended, you know, a lot of the time. So you share information with them and in this way, you ask them to be a vegan supporter. They don't have to be vegan themselves to be able to be respectful of you and support you for who you are and the really important compassionate choices that you've made in your life. And many vegans find that when the people in their life become supporters, their allies, everything changes for them in their relationships. Um, 
And, you know, if you're, Michelle, you actually said, what would I do, you know, with this Pierce Morgan situation, right? I can bring that maybe home to something that a lot of vegans experience. It's very jarring and difficult for them, you know, which is basically being confronted with somebody, maybe not, you know, a TV host, a television host, but somebody in their own family or in their own circle who's having dinner meat right in front of them at the table. What do you do? You know, so often vegans get labeled as controlling you know, because, you know, you're trying to impose your values on me. And this makes vegans just shut down and not say anything because nobody wants to be called controlling. Um, and I, I think, you know, so so one way that you can communicate about this is say, look, I, I'm, I don't want to tell you what you can or can't do. I'm not trying to tell you what you can or can't do. What I want to share with you is how I feel when you do this how I feel when this happens. So you can say something like, you know what, when I sit down and there's like a turkey on the table, I'm thinking Thanksgiving or whatever, um, say it's a turkey. You know, when I sit down and I, I look at this turkey in the middle of the table, try as I might, I cannot help but see a dead animal. It didn't used to be this way for me, but but it is now and I see it. And I also, I cannot help it, but I have flashbacks to these horrible images that I've seen of animals being butchered and slaughtered and killed. And it's just, I feel so terrible seeing it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's probably how you would feel if it was a dead dog in the middle of the table. I, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but this is how I feel when I see this. And it would really make a big difference to me if there has to be meat in the family, if it could be kept in the other room and you know just brought to the table after it's sliced or something or whatever your needs may be. And this way you're communicating. You're not saying this is what you can and can't do. You're not blaming people. You're saying, when this happens, here's how I feel. And people who care about you, hopefully will think to themselves, oh my God, I don't want you to feel that way. How can we find a way so that you feel okay, so that you feel secure and connected with me? Yeah, and I th I think also what you're saying is you're giving people an opportunity. I always say, help people help you. <laughs> help, exactly. Help people. We, we don't have to start with the end. We can start with... Um, opening up some some kindness with each other. And also of many of us, we know we are the ones that created that dead turkey in the middle of the table. I'm speaking for myself for decades. Okay. So when people hear you say, well, I don't want to see that anymore. They're like, okay, but you're the one that taught me how to do that. So we have to mm -hmm. also own ourselves with some compassion and say, yeah, it wasn't easy for me either. I didn't see it all the time either and give people a chance to kind of meet you. Um, and that's what I'm saying. When I feel that people aren't, aren't interested in meeting me, my, my thoughts, I don't, I don't feel the need to continue right. either. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's a, it's a good point that you make, um, you know, where you're staying and I always say this, try to remember your own carnism and you obviously are, are doing a good job of that. And so it's really, really important. You know, a lot of vegans accept disrespect because they're members of this ideological minority group, essentially, you know, and mm. we have these, you know, this, the, the dominant culture isn't respectful of us. And, you know, we, we get blamed. We're the weird ones. We're the ones who changed the dynamic and who changed, you know, our, 
your needs change. You change Thanksgiving. <laughs> you change Thanksgiving, but it's like yeah. people change. People's needs change. People change and grow. And that's the nature of being human and being alive. And, you know, um, but it, very often vegans, you know, feel so responsible for the changing dynamic and they're blamed because the culture blames them and their family and friends blame them that they, it, they accept disrespect, you mm-hmm. know, and they don't see the disrespect for what it is. They get teased at the table. There's like, you know, jokes and mockery that can be made that people would never say about, you know, for instance, Muslims who are not eating pork, you know, so, so it's really important for vegans to like, you know, recognize disrespect for what it is and not accept it, you know, really shore up your boundaries, take care of yourself. And it's also important to not project disrespect onto non-vegans. As you say, remember your own vegan, veganism, uh, sorry, carnism, because, you know, you are you are somewhat unique. I know many, many vegans. I have met thousands of vegans around the world. You know, they're only vegan for six months or like a year. They forget that they ever ate meat and they're looking at non-vegans and they're like, you're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it's understandable that vegans feel this like charge of, of judgmentality, right? It's understandable. You know, there's an urgency to our work, to our message. It's very painful. There's a lot of trauma that many vegans experience in the movement from witnessing all of the suffering and it's very understandable and it doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve the message when you're feeling judgmental, when you're feeling, you know, if you put yourself in a position of moral superiority, people are going to be very resistant to your message. And it's, it's, you know, it doesn't serve you either, because as I said, you know, we all have inherent dignity and people are who and how they are because of the way their life has unfolded. So for, for many vegans, I think it's also important not only to pay attention to whether people are practicing the formula toward you, but are you practicing the formula toward others? Are you, you know, are you able to recognize that people who are not vegan are at a different stage in their life, a different stage of exposure to the issue in their journey, you know, whatever might be going on for them? And, and can you give yourself permission to stay connected to somebody if they are treating you with respect, if they are basically, you know, decent people who want to do right by you and the world, but who maybe just aren't where you're at with veganism yet? Give yourself to stay connected with them, permission to stay connected with them and, you know, to remember that good people participate in harmful practices and it doesn't make them bad people. Yeah. And when you talk about um, vegan allies, uh, I I always say veganism, vegan um, plant, all of it, it's not another tool to beat yourself up with because I don't feel like that is creating the change we're hoping to see. It's also... I find it's not it's not sustainable for people to keep up the level of thoughtfulness and care and energy that they need to remain vegan in a in a carnist society in a non-vegan world. It it requires a little extra probably. It's not the default that many of us have have created. Mm-hmm. Though it gets side side note, it gets so much easier when it you does. practice. It gets so much easier. It's not it like it's not, I always say it's not this slog, this infinite slog. It's really that's right. It really gets so much easier. But you have to set yourself up for that sort of that level of uh, of of uh, success with it. So I I'm coming up right on your on your time to go. And I just want to say, would you you I'm so glad you mentioned some of the resources that you have and I've linked to all of them in the show notes. Is there one last thing you would like to leave uh, the Veg Your Best listeners with, Melanie? 
Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm just, you know, I'm so I'm excited. Like podcasts like yours exist today that would not have existed five years ago, probably. Um, and it's just really exciting to see the growth of this consciousness and 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 more and more people becoming interested. And, you know, in a podcast that has like the spaciousness that yours has, and obviously, you know, a listenership that is also committed to understanding and living with nuance and complexity and contradictions. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that your podcast exists and that it has a following and, and for the people who are part of this and who have tuned in and listened. And, you know, my organization is, is beyond carnism. Um, and we work to expose and transform carnism globally. And we do this through raising awareness of carnism. We have um, a bunch of, you know, videos around the subject and, and writings around it, easily shareable, resources. And we also work to empower people who are helping to transform carnism or want to become somehow involved in communicating about the problem in a way that increases the chances that your message will be heard the way you intend it to be. And that's our Center for Effective Vegan Advocacy. So we are a service, very much a service organization. We are in the service of people like you, of people like your listeners. We exist to help you do the good that you're doing in the world. And you work toward those positive changes that you're working toward in your lives. So please come visit us and use our resources resources. Um, that's why we exist. We exist for you. So you can come to carnism.org and you can also come to veganadvocacy.org if you want. Um, I also have a new podcast called Just Beings with Ivana Lynch. Um, and you can access that through either of our, um, probably carnism.org is the better way to do that. If you, if you want to tune in and we, we talk about these issues and beyond in them. It's it's marvelous. You really are working on every uh, medium, I think. You've done so much to make this um, accessible for people and to kind of meet people where they are. And I think that that is exactly the message here at, at Veg Your Best. Thank you very much, Melanie Joy, PhD. Thank you very much for joining us this week. Oh, thanks, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. So what did you think? What did you think of Melanie Joy? What a wonderful and clear speaker. I so admire that ability in people, and especially when they have something so amazing to talk about. And what's truly beautiful about Melanie's work is that it is really at heart relational. She recognizes that carnism, her term, carnism has disconnected us from our own internal guidance system and ideas about how we want to be. And her work is all about building bridges and awareness between people, including that relationship that I always, I always teach is the most important relationship we have with our own selves. I've shared with you all here many, many times that maybe the most powerful awareness that I've gained in these years as a practicing vegan is the awareness of how much else could there be that I might not be seeing. How many other things? I don't know. Now, Melanie Joy herself has a fairly recent podcast that you will want to subscribe to. It's called Just Beings. And she does this along with uh, actress Ivana Lynch. I think that I'm saying her name correctly, Ivana Lynch. And all the links to those podcasts and as well as everything else we discuss will be in the show notes. And before, before I go, um, 
after our conversation, um, I wanted to, something came out, and I'd like to draw your attention to a very, I guess we'd say that it's a very provocative video that Melanie's group, Carnism.org, just launched. And maybe you've seen it already, maybe maybe on my Instagram or on your social media, exposing the psychology behind why climate activists are often hesitant to prioritize addressing animal agriculture. And it follows a fictional breaking news story that suggests a climate scientist has tricked diners at an international climate summit into eating kitten soup rather than chicken soup. Then, Melanie Joy is interviewed and explains that this stunt exposes carnism. Carnism, that invisible belief system that she has drawn our attention to that conditions us to eat certain animals and reject a plant-based diet, even though plants have a vastly lower carbon footprint than animal products. Super, super compelling video. You will want to share it. You will. You'll want to share it. For now, I want to thank all of you guys, all of you, my veg heads and veg your besties. Thank you for listening. Thank you all for subscribing to the podcast, Veg Your Best. And I really want to thank you all for the time you've taken for feedback and ratings and messaging me. And most of all, for sharing your time with me. I take that very seriously. I want to be the person who cheers you on. I want to, whether it's in your new plant-based diet or in your vegan practice, I want you to know that I believe in you and the power of your impact on this beautiful planet. And even if you are already a confident veteran vegan, I want to cheer you on in your next evolution. You know, I've said it here before, first they'll ignore us, then they laugh at us, then they fight us, and then we win. Who's we? Animals, people, earth. So get out there, get out there and veg your best. And I'll see you next week. Veg Your Best podcast production, music, and editing by Charlie Weinshank. Thanks, Charlie. Before you go, it would mean so much to me and the Veg Your Best team if you would hit subscribe, leave us a five-star review, or share with someone you think might be interested. Something about algorithms, it helps bump us up a little in the rankings, and that's the best way to help others find the podcast and for us to find our audience. So until next week, make it easy and veg your best.